Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. All right, great to reconnect with all of the Disaster Politics podcast aficionados out there. Uh, We've got a great guest today. We're going to talk to Tony Bardo about uh, really getting a good industry perspective at that intersection of industry and government and communications, a lot of things that we've seen over the last few years. You know, they say in so many after-action reports, the one theme that you always see is communications. Uh, And a lot of changes have been made to accommodate that, but also a lot more things to consider going forward. Uh, So I think this is going to be a great conversation, a very relevant topic, one that always comes up again and again. So with that, uh, I'll stop talking. Let's get into it with Tony. And uh, yeah, uh, sit back, relax. We'll see you on the other side. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining today. Today, we have a great guest. We're joined by Tony Bardo, who's the Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. He's got an extensive career actually working at the intersection of the the communications and telecommunications industry uh, and government, um, and also helped facilitate work with agencies like the uh, FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, the Social Security Administration, uh, among many, many others. Um, But today, we're going to talk about disasters. So, Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Um, so, you know, before kind of getting into it, I'd love to hear a little bit more just about kind of uh, your role within all of this, uh, what you're doing and, and kind of how you got here. What's what's your uh, origin story, if you will? Well, I, um, I started uh, out of college in a career in banking. And when I realized that that wasn't the uh, end all be all for me, um, I joined the information industry and uh, started working at AT&T and in their government group. Uh, that was a long time ago, 1981. And uh, I uh, um, worked on a number of projects for them and uh, for for their government customers, uh, among them GSA and the Social Security Administration. Then went to uh, work for, uh, for MCI, a competitor, and uh, worked there for 14 years and also in the government uh, arena. And uh, then a short stint at Quest Communications, again, in their public sector uh, group. And then in uh, 2006, joined Hughes. And uh, Hughes um, sort of solved their, uh, their communicate brought their communications uh, capabilities to the federal government uh, kind of in a different way. Uh, our landmark product at the time was, uh, was satellite communications. And so we were um, quickly thrust into various opportunities that resulted in, for the most part, serving rural areas of the government and uh, locations, um, which satellite was ideally suited for, but certainly prominently um, in the in the sort of mid-2000s, uh, we, uh, we started getting into uh, various emergency management uh, um, solutions and situations that that brought to light some of the great great capabilities of, of satellite uh, where it came to emergency uh, and disaster management when communication services were were compromised traditional communication services were uh, 
were uh, left um, uh, un unresponsive, if you will. So we, uh, we've been doing that uh, ever since. We've uh, certainly expanded into various other um, areas of the federal market but, uh, and, and, and state market, but um, this, this uh, disaster, disaster response um, is sort of um, key for us in terms of being able to, to you know, help people out, help, help agencies out when they're, uh, when they're left without communications. Yeah, that's really interesting. And especially working across, you know, I know a lot of times in, in my world, when we think of disasters, we think of FEMA, but actually there's a whole government apparatus, right, that uh, if not directly part of the response needs to continue to function and, and get those social security checks out, <laughs> etc. Well, it's, it's one of the things I've always, I've always said is that the, a disaster is the, uh, and an emergency situation is the last time your government should stop being able to respond. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I might have to steal that from you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know, we talk about like the importance of staying connected in disasters. And I know you mentioned satellite technology. Is that still one of the primary technologies that we're using? Has it gone into other areas now that we have, you know, uh, wider ranging cellular broadband, things like that? Um, what, what does the landscape kind of look like technologically? My view of the landscape is that it takes really a lot of different pieces to, to solve the problem whenever a disaster strikes. Certainly the traditional um, terrestrial means of communications that if they are still valid and still um, left standing and able to, to operate, certainly these are the large pipes, the large bandwidth uh, capabilities that uh, businesses and government uh, agencies use. Um, over the years, um, uh, mobile technology has, uh, cellular technology has uh, bolstered its capabilities as well. Um, and satellite certainly plays a role. The, 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 the key is path diversity and options and available alternative technologies to sort of round out the capability suite that, that, that an agency or a government or a business um, um, should should have at their disposal. Yeah, creating options right through and through because you don't know which ones you'll need. Um, what what so across these different technologies, what are what are some of the just garden varieties, some of the vulnerabilities? I mean, I would imagine uh, electricity and the power outages being one of those. But um, but what are some of the vul vulnerabilities, uh, alternatives, and and kind of mitigation steps that you find yourself involved in? Well, the first uh, first situation that I was uh, involved with and, and and was exposed to was certainly um, uh, Hurricane Katrina, and then another great example of that it was um, Superstorm Sandy. When you talk about vulnerabilities, the the communications facilities that are lying in the ground, um, and even the ones that ostensibly don't appear to be lying in the ground, but everybody thinks of a mobile. Um, phone as just being able to talk into the air and, and somehow it gets to the other end. The fact of the matter is mobile mobile uh, cell, cell towers rather are connected by landlines. So if the landlines are compromised either by um, Joe backhaul um, cut you know digging in the in the building next door to yours and cuts that fiber that could be cutting the fiber not only to your building but the surrounding area uh, connection to uh, to cell phone towers and so forth, and it can really compromise um, anything uh, uh, that, that's that's connected on the ground. And for instance, the famous 
photo that was in the New York Times of the uh, uh, of the local carrier in New York City's. I won't name names, but the local carrier in New York City had their equipment in the basement of this building, uh, right in downtown Manhattan, and there was the picture of the water level above the doorknob in that building, and nothing in that basement worked uh, in terms of. Um, uh, operating uh, as it normally should. So, you know, getting the wires cut, getting the wires flooded, getting the equipment flooded, that can all sort of happen um, uh, for for communications faculties uh, on the ground. Um, what's what's important, what we see is, is yeah, that's vulnerable and uh, there's a vulnerability there, but path diversity solves that problem. So, path diversity mitigates the, the downed effect of uh, a company or an agency's ability to, to communicate. Have that ability to, um, to switch over when, when the router sees a failed condition of the primary path, switches over to an alternate path. And basically it's, it's, uh, it's, it goes back to the days when um, one of our founding fathers said, you know, one by land and two, two if by sea. So there's there's just different ways that you can set up to be prepared for continuity of your communications capabilities. Then the other thing, the other part of this is capabilities where you didn't or nor normally have capabilities. For instance, at Superstorm Sandy, FEMA was setting up disaster recovery centers in parking lots, at churches, in schools, at at, at hospitals. And so they set up tents outside and there were no facilities at those tents, at those um, locations. Satellite um, services were rolled in quickly and a, a, quick, a, a quick connection was set up to, to the internet by virtue of the, uh, the satellite antenna pointing to the southern sky and, and uh, resuming communications. Oh, absolutely. And then kind of along the, that point too, right? The... Um needing to have alternatives, alternative ways of communication that aren't necessarily reliant on the same same wires in the ground. Um, so, so we talk about sort of a lot of the different options that are out there and a lot of these different technologies. Um, and I, I don't know a whole lot about telecommunications, but I do know that a lot of times when the word telecommunications, there's usually the word regulator somewhere in the paragraph too, um, uh, as well as with legislators and the executive agencies and, and being at the center of working with government services. I wonder if you could educate us a little bit on wh what is that relationship? So once we get past sort of the disaster need and the technological need, what is this interface with the, with the government agencies in terms of actually getting to these assets being available, being procured, being on the ground? What what uh, what is key is in, in in our role here is to have our uh, services already pre-established um, uh, regulatorily and 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 uh, you know not not so much tariffs anymore, but having the frequencies established and set up as part of our standard service. So the role really in terms of um, being. Um, having a restriction or some kind of impediment um, in order to operate really, really doesn't come up. Um, for instance, when um, when the hurricanes hit uh, uh, Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, we already had service uh, capability established um, from the regulators uh, to to be able to to operate in 
Puerto Rico. So that was that was not an impediment at all. What what really matters to to us in terms of seeing um, what the what the things that could get in the way or things that prevent agencies and businesses from um, from having uh, uh, backup communications at the ready, if you will. There's a difference between emergency response, as you know, and emergency prep. Mm -hmm. So emergency prep is what you can do to set up um, uh, alternate communications, backup communications, and path diverse communications before the disaster ever, ever hits. And what really in, in the government world, which is what I'm most, most familiar with, is having the funding to do so. Um, I, I hear so often, we don't have money for preparation, for resiliency. Um, that's, where, uh, that's where 911 centers, that's where government, um, uh, critical government facilities that serve the public, um, that's where schools can be helpful because they're everywhere and they're in every community. If they had the funding for backup communications, um, you'd be surprised to think about um, how much that might save money versus all the money that is saved in rushing to the scene unprepared and trying to trying to sort of um, uh, put put things back together. And that's kind of where we are in 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 our world. That's certainly where we were in Puerto Rico. Um, we we came to Puerto Rico by various means, bringing equipment and personnel. When we got to the airport, when we got to the port, we found bridges were were destroyed, roads were destroyed. There wasn't exactly a, a fleet of Humvees waiting for us to put our gear on and go out to various parts in the island that needed um, needed service. It was just a real logistical nightmare. If things had been set up at key locations, you can't set up everywhere where you think a disaster is going to occur, but you can do better than nothing. And that's that's where I think um, uh, the government could could help with setting aside funds for um, disaster communications and disaster instant uh, disaster recovery. Yeah, you know, I, I come from a public health background, so I definitely feel you in terms of underinvestment before and then outsized expectations after, um, which actually kind of brings us to the pandemic and the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I'm curious for something that's had such far reaching uh, impacts right across all aspects of society. Has this um, have you guys been involved with that? Has that created any any communication stressors that are that are we're talking about or am I am I reaching here? Well, certainly the pandemic had an effect because people didn't go to work, um, children didn't go to school. What what happened was, you know, the corporate networks and the school net networks were not being used because teachers were at home, workers were at home, bosses were at home, and everything relied on that connection at the home. Was there enough bandwidth to serve the the kids in the in the house um, doing Google um, education services and Zoom and so forth and video conferencing? My my uh, my wife was a teacher and is a teacher and and um, she was on Zoom conferencing or Google conferencing all day long video conferencing with her students and 
the bandwidth that that took and the the resilience that was needed uh, in the in the home networks that really wasn't there. The, the, the internet was really upside down. The internet largely used at night when people are at home and people are at work, people are at school and they use those networks. Now all of a sudden the internet was upside down and um, the internet was congested um, frequently. Uh, how many times have you, perhaps you and I been on video calls that um, that sudden suddenly were frozen on the on the screen and so forth. So the pandemic had a profound effect, and we we saw that um, with customers who were using satellite, terrestrial, mobile, everything was was com- compromised and wasn't as quick to respond and as as open as usually the resilient the resilient internet is. Yeah, you know, it, it, it brings an interesting dynamic uh, to all of this. Um, and, uh, you know, whether looking at the communications infrastructure or the electric grid, which similarly had sort of this uh, um, uh, uh, very different structure in terms of how uh, people were consuming energy and electricity, is that how quickly sort of these drivers of changes in behavior can, can stress the systems in, in unanticipated ways? Um, I know in uh, the community that I live with, and they were actually, um, the internet company was in the process of doing a major upgrade, and they were a little ahead of schedule, so they rolled it out, um, and I think it was in the summer instead of the fall, uh, and boy, did that help in terms of uh, uh, freezing a little less on the calls and being able to handle a couple of us eating up all the bandwidth simultaneously. Um, so yeah, it's it's some interesting points into um not just the direct effects on the infrastructure, but to the what's being pulled through it at any given time could also bring it to uh, bring it down in extreme cases, in less extreme cases, uh, bring it to a crawl. I mean, you think about the fact that you know there were there were people you know getting very very sick and people were dying, and here were all these other people who were at home, um, uh, self quarantining, if you will. And basically their, their offices were closed, the schools were closed, but they were healthy. They were able to work, they were able to attend school, um, um, delivered, schooling d- delivered in a different way. And yet they were affected by it. They weren't um, medically affected by it, but the, the, the sort of um, residual effect on the pandemic or a hurricane or a, an earthquake just has these rolling effects throughout. And uh, this is where we, we learned uh, lessons um, out of the Puerto Rico experience. What we learned was how hard it was to get to the island with when there was a disaster there, when um, people were trying to go there and help and bring help and bring equipment and bring services. And, uh, and the logistics were just an absolute nightmare. What was learned then was in FEMA's case, when we helped out FEMA with um, you know, a number of, uh, of facilities or, uh, throughout the island, uh, th- really not just for FEMA, but we, we deployed for Hurricane Maria um, 1,500 VSATs, um, um, satellite terminals, uh, to the island. What we did with FEMA is, or f- what FEMA did was they left, they, they put the VSAT terminals in a warehouse for the next time. So we didn't have to go through that all over again because usually we'll we'll deliver the services, we keep them there for as long as they're needed, 
and there's another story there that I'll, t uh, I'll tell you about in a minute, but usually they, they then return them to us and then we, we store them for another time when they need it next. This time was different. They kept all the units in storage in Puerto Rico. A year later, we had earthquakes there. Mm -hmm. And FEMA, wrote, we had trained FEMA to deploy these, to put them up on their pods, if you will, point the antennas properly, establish the connection, and do it basically themselves without us having to be there. We were on the other end up here in Germantown in our network operations center, coordinating with them. Yep, I see you. I see you. Let's connect. Okay. Are you getting service? Fine. Are you getting the speed you're looking for? Exactly. Good. Okay. And they were able to operate without waiting for us to get back to the island and waiting for us to install these things. And that was the lesson learned that this could happen again. We could have another Maria or some other disaster, and it did. And they they sort of maintained some level of preparedness. They didn't know where the centers were going to be next time. Um, so they didn't, they didn't have them mounted permanently, but they had them in storage. They were close by, and they were quickly deployed. That, that's great to hear, too, though. You know, there's so much... Uh... I, I tell folks this business can be so negative sometimes of all the things that have gone wrong that I think it's important we highlight what went right because those are practices worth replicating, um, especially in very hazard prone areas that are uh, with less options um, for <laughs> landlines and cables and things like that. Okay. The other the other story in Superstorm Sandy, which was um, you know six or seven or eight years before before uh, Maria, was when we deployed. Um, we I, I I witnessed how. Uh, retired um, FEMA folks were on call to to come to the rescue with with uh, with their experience, with their knowledge, um, and certainly their capabilities to handle the load at these disaster recovery centers. Mm -hmm. And so they they were just sort of great people, and and it was a little bit of a reunion for all these folks that don't see each other all that often. And they were all getting together and we were establishing, you know, putting the wires in the, in the, uh, this, this church that, uh, uh, that we, uh, that we established a, a center for. And, and uh, they said, Oh, we're so glad you're here. You've got some really you know great stuff. Here's great speed. It's, it's better than it used ever used to be. And, and we're really happy. And uh, you'll be here about two or three days. Uh, you know, that'll be pretty much the extension because that was their experience. Well, Superstorm Sandy, in a number of locations throughout New York, we were there for six months. It took that long to repair the damage that wow. the storm had, had, had wrought and, and, and reestablish um, landlines and re, you know, lay more fiber to replace what was, what was damaged. And uh, at Puerto Rico, we were there for a year and a half. So, this this can have what you think would be temporary effect, what you think is temporary service that you do and, and you, you you do your job and, and you fulfill your role and then everything gets put back to normal rather quickly. And the industry is res resilient that way and, and it's, you know, the, 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 the players uh, do a great job. Here were two instances where it took a long time to get things back to normal. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And definitely two recent examples. And with that and with the pandemic and, and just sort of the cascading effects, I think a lot to, to learn is how we think about these things going forward, uh, which actually kind of brings me to my next question, which is uh, from, where you, from where you're sitting, what is, uh, what is on the horizon for our communications infrastructure? What do you see the next 10, 20, 50 years um, looking like, uh, both from a technological perspective, but also um, since you work on the, the government side of things, how, how is government, would you anticipate? I know we have these large infrastructure bills in play right now and still a lot being worked out there, but um, uh, taking a look at the tea leaves here, what, uh, what are you seeing? Well, there are, there are a lot of companies, and as I said at the outset, Jeff, a lot of companies make up this, um, this sort of network, this, this quilt work, if you will, of, of capability that all have a, have a role. Your primary networks, they, they're, you know, fiber is being laid um, in, in many places. Uh, 5G is certainly uh, uh, going to take uh, a prominent role. Um, the uh, band 14 capabilities of, of FirstNet uh, are, are, have been building and emerging. Um, and in my, in my world, in the satellite world, we're, we're seeing developments in what are called LEO, low, low Earth orbiting satellites, which are a constellation of smaller satellites that, that um, um, are in much lower orbit and therefore delivering great speeds the lower um, um, uh, resistance to, to um, latency, if you will, that uh, the satellites that we have normally pr provided and, and uh, supplied in services for so many years are geostationary um, uh, satellites, which are 22,000 miles above Earth. So you do that physics and you do a 44,000 mile round trip, if you will, of your communications path, uh, all of a sudden you get, you know, hundreds of milliseconds or numbers of milliseconds of latency. You know mm -hmm. how you say, hello, Jeff, is that you? And there's that, there's that slight delay before I hear your return response. And that is getting better all the time with the advent of the low Earth orbiting satellites. In the meantime, there's still a place, very much so, for the standard geosynchronous 22,000 miles above the Earth satellites. We're launching one next year. For instance, the services that we delivered to um, Hurricane Maria, to FEMA uh, in, in response uh, to, to the Puerto Rico disasters in Superstorm Sandy, we were getting two meg up, 15 meg down. And then at Puerto Rico, that service was up three megabit per second up and 25 megabits per second down. These were speeds at the time you never saw from satellites. Oh. Well, this new constellation of what we call high throughput satellites, which will be launched next year, are going to give us download speeds of 100 megabits per second per site. And that will, that will help first responders, that will help FEMA operators in the field uh, that will help businesses and agencies who deploy alternate communications at their facilities, at their main facilities, to have that alternate path with such terrific speed and capability, not ever, not ever being done before or offered before by the satellite industry. 
So those are the themes that are coming about 5G, uh, uh, FirstNet, um, greater speeds um, on the land, and of course, greater speeds and capabilities um, uh, with satellites. So uh, it's, it's all getting better and moving in the right direction. What, what I see is needed is back to an early point we discussed is particularly for the public sector is proper government funding for resiliency. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that'll very much be, if not already, should be on the agenda for uh, just with the increasing costs of, of disasters, the increasing disruptions, um, and just the, the increasing need for um, to invest up front so we don't pay for it after. <laughs> the sooner the better, too, because this, this hurricane season is projected to be worse and, and more damaging than last year's. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Um, so, you know, as folks are hearing this, if they want to learn more about uh, about your work, about what you're up to, about what Hughes is up to, where can folks go to uh, to find more information on all of this? Well, certainly at Hughes.com for the, the general population, um, the, they can be... Um, then uh, they, from there they can they can learn more if they're if they're searching about this for themselves personally as consumers. There's a consumer division of Hughes um, that that uh, is uh, is reachable through that website. There's the government group at Hughes. Certainly, we handle federal, state, and local uh, uh, customers. And then there is an enterprise uh, commercial um, group at Hughes that. Uh, uh, that also offers these these various services. So um, uh, we're uh, we've been in this business now 50 years, uh, celebrating our 50th anniversary uh, uh, later this year, and uh, we're um, we've been we've been at this for a long time, and it's uh, it it truly is rocket scientists. I'm surrounded by hundreds of rocket scientists in our building in, in Germantown, Maryland, and. Uh, they um, they absolutely stun me with their uh, with their experience and their expertise, and uh, they are always pushing the envelope of forward. and And this next this next group of high throughput satellites is gonna just, I think, blow away uh, what's been done before. Well, it's good to know too that there's a lot in the pipeline and continuing to raise the bar for all of this. Um, I definitely appreciate you coming on and would love to keep the conversation going in the future and, and hear more about what's going on. But um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to educate us on uh, on, on this and, and for us all to get a little bit smarter on uh, satellite communications and kind of the, the various uh, types of communication and, and that intersection with disasters and government. And Jeff, uh, you know, let me also mention, uh, you know, my name and and uh, uh, look look for me on social various social media uh, platforms. And we're discussing Hughes's 50th anniversary, and we're discussing uh, um, the efforts we're making to uh, to you know move the yardsticks forward in in terms of the things we do um, and the legacy that we'll we will continue, especially for uh, disaster recovery and emergency communications. Absolutely. And we'll link to, uh, to some of these links too in the podcast description so folks can find them easily. But uh, yeah, once again, just thanks so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, just appreciate everything. Pleasure was mine, Jeff. Thank you very much. All right.
right. Thanks again to Tony Bardo for joining us today and providing us his insights and expertise as it relates to communications. Certainly a topic that's going to continue to evolve and change as the disasters we face evolve and also as the technology itself starts to change. So I'm sure this is a topic we'll be coming back to. Hey, if you like what you're listening to, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik. If you want to be on the show or have some comments to make in a less public forum, send them to DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. And once again, thank you all for tuning in. And whatever you're doing out there, be safe out there.